Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're chatting with writers Jenny Lumet and Alex Kurtzman, who are co-show running Showtime's The Man Who Fell to Earth, which I just loved, by the way, but we'll get into that. Uh, Jenny broke into the business with her screenplay for Rachel Getting Married, which was nominated for just a number of industry awards. And Alex is one of our business's most celebrated genre writer-directors, having written and directed on shows like Vina and Alias and Sleepy Hollow. And he also co-wrote both Star Trek reboots with Roberto Orci and Damon Lindelof. And they also share co-creator credit on Paramount Plus's Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Which I'm very excited about. So hi, Alex and Jenny. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Welcome. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for having us. It's so great for you guys to be here with us. Now, um, before we dive in to all of our many questions for you from us and our uh, listeners, we're going to talk about our weeks or what we call adventures in screenwriting, and they've been great sports and are going to join us. So Lorian, you go first, show them how it's done. So uh, my week has been all about um, balance and communicating expectations about what I can actually deliver in my <laughs> personal and professional lives. Nice. So Something happened this week where I just felt like this sense of urgency ratcheted up. Like all of a sudden I had 16,000 more emails and people reaching out to me. And like, I just felt like sort of so much was happening in the industry. All of a sudden I was like, is it just me? Or is like, did something switch on, you know? And um, I have four projects in development right now in different stages. And so they're all sort of, Hey, what's going on? Let's meet, let's chat. Where are those pitch pages? All that. So trying to figure out what I can actually deliver and then communicating that in a realistic way that, so I don't feel like I'm disappointing anyone, but I also feel like I can actually meet that expectation. Meanwhile, in my personal life, you know, I have these, you know, everything also feels urgent there. And I have all these roles, right? Mother, wife, daughter, writer, um, friend. And so figuring out how I can also communicate expectations in those places and not disappoint anyone. But for me, the core of it really has been um, that I'm not those roles, I'm something else, right? The the core of me is not just writer, that's not my identity. Mother is not just my identity and trying to figure out how all that works into like great big life identity stuff while also trying to, you know, give notes on an art packet for an animated show I'm pitching, right? So it's like, it's this weird dance of micro and macro. And I haven't figured it out, but I am battling that, managing that, struggling that this week. And still managing to get things done and show up here and get to talk to you too. And Meg and Jeff. It's <laughs> so, so that's my it's, week. <laughs> it's such a writer's life to have many pots boiling. I was talking to a writer friend and he's like, oh, I always have to have to writing two things at once. So when I procrastinate, I'm actually writing on the other one. That's my mm-hmm. procrastination. Totally. You know, like, I, I mean, do you guys find that you, are you juggling a lot of projects at the same time or do, are you kind of one and stay on one track? I mean, obviously if you're running a show, you're doing right. the show. No, 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 no. Oh, 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 that's very no. interesting. No, 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 no. Have you met Alice Kurtzman? <laughs> no, no, okay. Um, 
Um, first of all, I was very impressed, Lorraine, with your ability to articulate the crazy shit, the crazy yeah. shit that was going on in your yeah. life last week. And because I was thinking yes to all the things, and I was thinking, wasn't I supposed to go to the CVS? I was supposed to go to the CVS <laughs> for something like incredibly important. I don't know. Right. Um, uh, but um, so I was I was thinking. I could have spent last week thinking about how to how to articulate last week, and then I would have been would have created like this incredible impression that you just created. <laughs> um, I work with Alex Kurtzman, and he, I I do like four things, and he does like eleven t billion, if that's the number. <laughs> and I don't know how he does it, but one of the reasons we are partners is because he has this brain that can switch from track to track to track to track, like like a really angry subway driver. <laughs> um, and I, I'm a little more, honestly, I'm a little more chaotic. Um, my home life is a little more chaotic. I'm a single mom and I live with my mom who's also a single mom and I live with my daughter and there's, it's like estrogen central over here and somebody's in the throes of a syndrome at any given moment and it's like a coven. Um, but there's also a ton of shit going on and I don't really know how to, live any other way but I don't mind it I'm actually kind of sort of it works for me it um I don't know how he does it and he does more stuff than than I do how do you do it Alex well I guess um, thoughtful and consider it's a nightmare I know I mean (laughs) Lorian's Lorian's answer was so like precisely articulated that that I, I I have to I feel like I have to do justice to that um I don't know. I, I think I'm in an interesting moment right now because I, literally I just came from watching the the final mix color combination. Like I basically once I'm done with finishing the mix and the color and sound on, on an episode, I will go watch it in a theater now um, just to make sure that it's exactly right um, before it airs. So I just came from the finale. And having come from the finale, that means that I'm done with the man filter. Holy shit. It's done. Wow. It's finished. Wow. Like, there's, no, there's no more, there's no more, you know, color VFX, you know, sound because my day is for the last, you know, year and a half has been totally consumed by that along with the other things that are going on. But, you know, it's yesterday's four hours in color timing and then two hours in the mix on nine and, you know, all, all those kinds of things. So right now I feel like I'm, I have finished something that I, that Jenny and I are both so proud of that was unbelievably hard to birth. Conceptually, I think it's probably the biggest swing we've ever taken on anything with, with, and in order to do it, we had to walk through a minefield that was very, very long and wide. And then we had to go make it in COVID right sort of at the beginning of, you know, um, what, we were one of the first productions that came back. Um, and then, you know, kind of like our Star Trek shows, when you finish production, you still have eight months of post-production because of visual effects. So it's, it's just a very long, you know, each episode takes about five months of post-production. So to be at the end of that journey and feel like I feel very emotionally drained in a good way because I've been through the same thing where you've just given, you know, three or four years of your life to something, you're like, this is garbage. This is terrible. And that is not a good way to feel at the end of something. So I feel 
tired in the right way, but also a little bit um, like I need a minute. Like I'm used to, I'm as Jenny said, I'm used to sort of shifting tracks so fast. That being said, it did not stop us from breaking the first episode of the next show that we are doing together. Jenny and I sort of sat down. Our process is like, we'll take lots and lots of long walks and talk and talk and talk and like share information. And and, and I think on this one, we've, we've kind of, we've been letting it marinate for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And we sat down yesterday and it just sort of unspooled in front of us, you know, and we we're like, it's this and this and this and this and this. And so there, there is that, the thing you were talking about, about working on multiple projects. I think one of the things that it does is it allows your brain, your subconscious to sort of cook on something while you're focusing on other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Meg, before we get to you, I have a question for you. You'd mentioned this long, wide minefield, mm-hmm. right? And I can imagine there was times when you wanted to run back, right? Or push forward. So what was the thing that was keeping you moving forward through that minefield? Panic. Legit. Oh, that is one yeah. of my favorite motivations. Yeah, yeah I, that's it right there. <laughs> you, you simply cannot stop. Because there's people who gave you a bunch of money to do this, and there's people who have jobs, and everyone says you got to do it, and and uh, even if you stop, they sue you. So if it gets really, really bad, it's better than jail. New <laughs> <laughs> T-shirt. Okay, but it, okay, in the in the development process, when you don't have the ability to throw that panic switch because no one's paying you. You can mm-hmm. still hit minefields, at least in story, right? Maybe right. not uh, politics or personalities, but there's story minefields. What keeps you moving forward in that situation? You know, it's really interesting. I think it, and it may be particular to the partnership that we have. Alex and I laugh a lot. Most of our time is spent laughing our asses off. We're very immature. Um, <laughs> so the mind, first we're, we're, we laugh enough to know that during that the minefields are, it's fine. It's fine because we're laughing. Um, and we also trust each other enough to know that the mind, the minefield is part of it. Um, and I'm not going to let him blow up and he's not going to let me blow up. Um, uh, or if we were riding camels through the minefield, like I'm not going to let his, whatever it is. Um, no, I love that. I love that. We trust yeah. each other. Uh, enough he's got me and I've got him and we make each other laugh uh yeah I've, I have found even when in features when you're working with a director the best is when you have that feeling with the director that neither of you are going to let either of you blow up or if you do you're going to be grabbing onto each other or, but that's when you get really amazing great deep stuff up yeah. into the feature and when you don't have that it can be so much harder it's not that you can't get to that stuff but when you don't have that trust of we're in this together and, you know, and it's harder on features because there's many writers are going to come and go potentially on these mm-hmm. big movies, right. Um, to even develop, have time to develop that kind of trust with a director too. But I, I find that in features too, that when you do get that beautiful trust uh, in that minefield, because every story, like you said, the minefield is part of the process. I think it's yeah. a big theme we have here on our podcast because I think emerging writers or newly minted writers or even pro writers, even me, sometimes you forget that failure and blow-ups are part of the artistic process and that you're gonna, it's gonna happen instead of taking it personally or or that means this doesn't work. It's such a big part of it. Huge, huge. I mean, we learned that that don't one of the most valid, valid valuable, excuse me, things that Alex said to me 
and this was a long time ago, was a, um, he's like, I know, I know we've destabilized it, but we have to destabilize it. And I was, uh, you know, I, I have a certain Yosemite Sam kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the destabilization, uh, to, it's it's the analogy of the guy when they're trying to break the sound barrier and you know you hit the plane does this, this this and everyone slows down and then you push forward and you crash headlong into the cliff. It's not that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I learned to love destabilization when I became partners with Alex Kurtzman. Alex, can you talk about that? Because I think that is such a brilliant metaphor that so many writers don't understand that that destabilization is actually sometimes what you're working towards. I also have the Yosemite Sam freak out, by the way. So mm-hmm. I'm on, I, yeah. I totally get that. But Alex, what for that is, is that for you? Well, I think destabilization and trust go entirely hand in hand, right? So like my trust in Jenny is, is as deep as hers is in me. And part of it is knowing that, okay, if we, if we, if we decide that we're going to throw it on the ground and shatter the plate, we're going to pick up those pieces very carefully and we can actually put the plate back together. It's not going to look like what it looked like before, but it will be something new. It might even be better. Um, I think you, the, the thing about trust is that here's what I know about myself. I cannot be a person who functions well with other people if I am not trusted and I cannot be a good writer if I don't trust or director, if I don't trust the people that I'm working with, it just, it's just that simple. Like, and I, I've come to the place now where like, if I, if I enter into a thing and I sort of begin to smell that smell that I used to avoid when I was just sort of a screenwriter for hire, I'm like, Nope, I'm out. I'm not doing it because mm-hmm. I know where that's going to lead. And I think that, that Jenny and I, our, our ability to trust each other, knowing that like, there's never really going to be such a thing as writer's block because yeah, we might not see it for a period of time, but we're going to keep gnashing through it and we're going to ultimately find it. And then it will just hit us one day. It'll just mm-hmm. be there. And you, so you have to, so then you're trusting the process, right? But you can't trust the process if you don't trust your partner. Um, and I think that the, the thing about the beautiful thing, so I'll give you a, gr- a really good example with the man who fell to earth about that moment of the sort of destruction. We had done uh, a full room right up to COVID. And we would, we theoretically were supposed to have had a full season of the show by the time we had finished the room. We had four episodes. And we had four episodes because we kept struggling. It was a very hard show to figure out because you can't point to another show and go, it's like that, right? And so we just didn't have a template for it. And we were, we were trying to forge new ground. And So we're four episodes in. We've just spent the studio's money on the entire room. We don't have a show for it. And the woman who was running what was at the time CBS All Access is somebody who I had worked with for a very, very long time named Julie McNamara, who I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. And Julie and I went all the way back to Alias. I mean, she was like a junior exec when I was a junior writer. So we have a deep history with each other. So Julie now at this point cut to she's running the network and she's the one who when it didn't, we had, we had Hulu and CBS couldn't make a deal over it after we had finished the pilot. So CBS ended up taking it and it ended up, she put it on what was then CBS All Access, now Paramount Plus. And we've had a, we built Star Trek together. We have a very, very deep trust with each other. She said to me, all right, here's the deal. 
I want to make your show. I have no idea what you're doing. I don't understand it. And you have to give me a reason to say yes to your show. If you give me a reason, I will totally make it. And when somebody who you trust says that to you, what you don't do is go, you're wrong. You don't get it. You go, you're obviously correct. You know, if, if you're, if you're not feeling something that I'm, that is, that, that I'm clearly failing to, to put on the page, then we got to stop and we got to sit down. And it weirdly happened to coincide with the pandemic. So everything stopped anyway. And we said, look, give us three weeks, Jenny and John and, and, and the remainder of the staff, we're going to sit and we're going to, we're going to think about these notes. Cause I think what's required is not a small bandaid. I think what's required is like, we need to shoot it through the heart <laughs> and see, see if we can then resuscitate it. And what followed was Jenny, what would you say? Like three or four weeks of just like, just the initial phase of, of like, throw, like, let's throw that away. Let's throw this away. What happens if we remove it? And what ended up coming back in its place was the show that we made now. Mm -hmm. And we would never have gotten to that show. And all of the strange like characters that didn't exist and storylines that didn't exist and all these things, mm -hmm. if we hadn't actually taken an honest look in the mirror and said, we okay, failed we failed. Like, let's stop being precious. What do we need to do to rebuild it? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so important what you said early on, like you just beautifully describe where you have a plate and you throw it on the ground and mm -hmm. it shatters and you put it, you have a plate, you can put it back together and it's not the same. I think there's, for a lot of us, the fear that, well, I have a plate, I know. right? The plate functions. I can put food on it. I can put it on the table. So it's like breaking the plate means I don't have a plate anymore. I don't People have, have told me anymore. it's a pretty plate and I got yeah. interest in, in it. And how can I shatter it? How can I shatter right. it? And right. we're always like, no, you have to shatter it. You have to, throw you the have plate to on the rebuild the whole thing. Yeah. And you might only have one piece that you can use and then you build another plate around, you know, somehow, or, you know, so it's, can but I, like, yeah, can I ahead. ask you the question? So you guys, you, you have a lot of Pixar experience. Am I, am I correct about that? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, I mean, to me, they're like the gold standard in storytelling and have been for so long. And my understanding of that process, and I would love to hear, cause I've never actually spoken to anybody who'd been in those rooms, but my understanding is <clears throat> that you, uh, you go through it kind of exactly that, which yeah. is you beat the hell out of it. Everybody tells you what's wrong with it. You you either fight for it or you or you try and let it go. And then what gets rebuilt in the ashes of whatever your first idea was ends up being that movie. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It is a constant experience of build it. It gets torn down. Go back through the mm -hmm. rubble. What does the director want to do? What's the foundation? And then literally rebuild a new movie. And mm -hmm. you know, as a writer, I don't open up that document ever again because mm -hmm. we're starting mm -hmm. over. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean that certain things don't start sticking, yeah. right? Like this is very much the movie in this scene, but right. we got nothing around it, what, you know, or yeah. whatever. And you're constantly asking over and over, what's the arc? But it is a constant uh, smash the plate, shoot it in the heart, you know, experience. But again, to speak to what you guys are both speaking about, it takes a tremendous amount of trust of your team. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, at Pixar, you're very lucky because those team members are in the building uh, and it's a whole company of trust, right? It, mm -hmm. And even when you go into those big brain trusts, you're trusting the other directors are there truly at the table to help you. There's no politics. There's no weird, you know, thing that's going to happen that is truly a trusting experience to help you rebuild it. So absolutely. Um, I want, 
I want to talk about my week and, and put within it a question that we got from the audience, because it's something that I'm dealing with in terms of I'm very much an overwriter and often either working with a director or a writing partner, it's about I overwrite and then it's a clearing out. But in, I have I, my brain always has to do that in order to see it and feel it and know the pieces and maybe it's hiding and I don't know it like it created a brother character but guess what that was because you don't actually go look at that character and mm -hmm. you know once you cut them out it puts all this space for you to go deal with mm -hmm. you know but I know my process is, is to put a lot in um and I can I can overplot um and then it's you know okay like just like you guys were talking about okay what absolutely has to stay and what and everything's on the table to start pulling out so that you can find the beautiful and so i've been doing a lot of that um uh, kind of culling down cull it down uh so that you can have the space for the emotion and the space for all those thematic things you want to talk about in the relationships um and the other thing i'm doing that actually involves the question that we had is um you know there is there's there are set pieces and uh you can get so involved in the fun of the set piece or the world building that there's two, but there's also two things I'm constantly asking, which is either, uh, you know, either partners in this process or just myself, which is what is the game of this plot wise, right? Cause this is way too long. The game is way too complicated. I'm not even following it by the third rule that's coming in. What is the simple game he has to get from here to here this way, this is what's in front of him. This is the game he has to do. Um, and then there's also, what is this about emotionally, thematically? And that was an, a question we had from one of our listeners was how, when you're creating an action set piece, do you keep your eye on that ball about thematically, what is this about, which is ultimately character, right? So I guess I'd love to talk to you both about the game of the, of, of creating uh, all this. In, I mean, the pilot alone has so many, like there's an overall game to the pilot and then there's games within the game. And the, but most importantly, how do you also uh, do the emotion and thematic? That's such an easy question to answer, Meg. I mean, I know. well, come on, I want to know. <laughs> um, Let's just take actor. How, how do you create a set piece and keep your eye on the ball of the of the character and thematics? Um, I'm happy to answer. Jenny, do you want to take it or would you like me to take it? No, because I don't I had a once an experience once where um, this was back on. I think I told you about this, Alex. I talked to I asked Jonathan Demi what a set piece was and he said I don't know but if you have three of them you get funding <laughs> and then I became my mission to find out what a set piece was and a lot of agents knew people who did not know Milos Forman did not know um, Jonathan again Demi did not know dad knew he said something along the lines Meg, what you're saying about um, it encapsulates it's the micro that encapsulates the emotional. Da, 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 da. But it was amazing how many people, uh, the agents were like, it's the dancing part. So, okay. Um, so I, can't, I couldn't, I always think that, emo that like the emotional scenes is two people sitting at dinner and someone says, pass the salt. I'm like, look at that set piece, that's amazing. Because that's for me where all the shit's going down. Um, Alex knows a lot more about this, that particular avenue than I do. So I will defer. Um, you know, there's an old adage about musicals, right? Where the, the, 
the the musicals that um if you look at the structure of a musical if you were to pull the songs out the story wouldn't work anymore um and 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 i think the same rule applies to action writing action screenwriting which is that if the set piece isn't moving the story forward or the character forward in some significant way then it needs to not be there and I've worked with directors before where they have pre-planned a set piece and suddenly you find yourself as a screenwriter trying to write mm -hmm. to a set piece rather than letting the set piece grow out of, you know, a, a, a legitimate emotional turning point for a character. And what happens is you can have great eye candy, but it's ultimately extremely empty for the audience. It just doesn't, it doesn't land. It doesn't stay with you, right? It's like, it's like, it's candy, right? It, it can taste very sweet, but, but you don't really remember it a second later, you know? Um, and in my experience with set pieces now, I think they all have to tell, they either have to turn over a new card in terms of story, or they have to turn over a new card in terms of a reveal about a character in the court, or, you know, or, you know, it brings two characters closer together for some reason, because like they might've hated each other, but suddenly they have to do something to survive together. And so a new, a new bond of trust is formed in that moment. I mean, you wrote inside out, right? Like you could break inside out down with all the same rules where you have all these set pieces, but every single set piece is moving the story forward in some significant way, mm -hmm. you know, or it's, it's so funny that, that we're having this podcast right now because my son reminded me, my son's 16 years old and he reminded me last night, I'm not an easy crier. It's hard. It, like I feel a lot of things and I promise you I'm crying inside, but to go outside and cry, like, very hard for me, except for when Bing Bong died. When Bing Bong died, I was like un inconsolable. Like I couldn't, <laughs> like I couldn't hold it together in the theater with my son. Um, so I feel like you know, that, but that is a, that's actually a great example of the answer to your question because she has to let that part of herself go in order to move on, right? In that at that point in the story, and so now you have a set piece that's that makes you feel all of the things, but if you didn't have that set piece, the character would not get to a new place. And so I think that that's, that's sort of the standard that we, we use now for what is the set piece doing is like, does it have to be there to move the story? I love that. And, you know, we're very lucky when you are a writer at Pixar, because you have these amazing genius artists drawing. Mm -hmm. And when you have Ronnie Del Carmen yeah. uh, uh, creating that moment, mm -hmm. um, truly it's, you know, you're kind of following their lead. Uh, yeah. They are, they are the leaders of, of that, those, so it's, it's, I, I, I very much need to give Ronnie that's, that's Ronnie yeah. It's, it's a symbiotic relationship too. Cause I'm sure that what happened was like, you might've had something maybe half baked in your mind or you were stewing on something. And then you see this picture that just brings it to life for you. And you probably instantly felt oh. something and seeing it. And then suddenly the scene became clear. I would imagine, mm -hmm. you know, I've been in that situation before. It's like, God, this is really tricky conceptually. Like I feel something here and I know that I kind of need it but what's it actually going to look like? And then you see an artist hands you a, a, a you know, a rendering and you go, oh my God. And it, it just opens a door in your mind. Mm -hmm. I, I will say though, if I could, if I could hop in, I mean, I'll just be honest, Jenny, like I love Rachel getting married very much. And when I think about like the scene where Anne Hathaway finally confesses her big traumatic secret in rehab, like that's totally a set piece, right? Even yeah. though it's like a small character moment, what it does in the movie compared to the stakes of what the film is and what the genre is like when you're watching that movie, your heart breaks and you weep and you fall over. So it feels like set piece maybe is just like big emotional turning points to a certain extent. 
I, 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 though I battle being reflexively supportive, I'm going to absolutely support you um, <laughs> <laughs> in that statement. Um, because I feel, I, I also feel like when Annie got up to, and there's a big chunk of Rachel getting married where people are dancing and there's no dialogue. And I feel like that's a set piece. And then Annie gets up to dance and Deborah Winger does not. And I feel like that, uh, tells you everything that you need to. And she and Deborah Winger need wraps her scarf sort of even tighter around herself. Um, and Annie gets up and tries. She can't really get into the action, but she tries. And that, that tells, that was a, a, certainly a set piece. Um, uh, in that movie. So I'm with you that, that it doesn't necessarily have to be action or music oriented. It can certainly be um, emotional and everything hangs on it. Yeah. That is, that's the, the goal, right? That it's all those things. It's yeah. all those things. And yeah. for your director and features, it's, uh, you know, the climax that he's never been able to see on screen and it's big enough, right. For mm -hmm. this movie that you, you still have to hit that as a writer too. And yet it's emotional and, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of boxes to check. Now we got a question from Billy Joe about the man, um, the man who fell to Earth. She asked about adapting a feature into a TV series and what that process was like. Mm -hmm. Well, we were adapting a book and a feature. Oh right, yes, we were adapting a book and a feature, and we actually we really we went astray, not astray. We went far away from the book and the movie um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, Walter Tevis, Nicholas Rogue, David Bowie, you have these three really big freaking guys um, who are extraordinary. And I'm like many folk, a huge Bowie fan, and that's a magic unicorn guy. So there's no way to chase that, right? So what we did know was that in both the novel and in the movie, Nicholas Rogue's movie, uh, the character of Thomas Faraday, fascinating and essentially passive. He comes to Earth. He takes a lot of action, oh, and then he Thomas to... Newton. Thomas Newton. Thomas Newton. What did I say? Thomas Newton. Yeah. Thomas Newton um, comes to Earth, takes a lot of action in building his fortune, and then he has to sit and wait for his spaceship to be built. And we knew that a television show could not have that. That could not be our protagonist. He had to be driven towards something and be taking action. Um, so we knew that. Uh, we knew to chase those guys would be a terrible mistake. So what we tried to do, and this sounds a little, might sound a little hokey, but it's true. We thought these folk wrote and filmed and acted with such curiosity and bravery and generosity um, that maybe if we try to be fucking brave and try to be curious and try to be generous and write open-heartedly and not like all when we're all pleased with ourselves and thinking, because that happens, I'm usually like thrilled with myself 28 times a day. And I'm like, oh, we're not going to do that. We're just going to try to be as brave as these guys. Um, and we did that. And I don't, if, whether it worked or it didn't work, it changed. I certainly think that it changed both of us. When you, say be, when you say be brave, what do you mean exactly? Um, it has a lot to do with destabilization. It has a lot to do with the things that you, I have this really cool idea for a thing. And, and it's just about one being clever for oneself, anything performative, anything um, we need to get this message across because this is really serious and we're going to wag our fingers at you till you get the message. Anything like, and I'll do that. I'll fuck, I mean, sit next to me at dinner. I'll do that shit all day. But um, we knew we couldn't do it. We knew we couldn't do it. Um, 
And so the bravery was to let go of all the stuff that we thought that we were really good at and that we really had covered and piece of cake, like just, and uh, be willing to blunder like fucking, we're like panda bears at some point, just like, <laughs> no idea, no idea. But we had each other, right? And that at some point, some moments are like, okay, all we have is each other because we don't know what the hell we're talking about. Um, and that's, I think, what I mean. I think you're Beautiful. also talking about like a screenwriting trap, which is to be clever. Clever is the worst. Right? And, and clever is the enemy of truth. And mm -hmm. so we, we, we have to check ourselves to make sure we're not being clever because mm -hmm. David Bowie, for all of the artifice of you know, I'm going to be a different character in, my, in a different album is actually wildly authentic in what he is doing and trying to all the time. You know? yeah. And I think that that's part of the bravery is just if you look at what he did in his career, um, there was always he was there's a fearless quality to everything he's trying. And he's not afraid to say things that most people are really afraid to say. Um, and so ultimately for us with Man of Earth, it was just about saying, how do we avoid being clever? How do we talk about these incredibly difficult things to talk about in a way that feels real, but also very surprising and very unexpected? Did you have, I love that about not being clever. The impulse to do it is irresistible sometimes, irresistible. right? I'm just going to put this little clever thing right there. And then it gets called out right away when someone right. reads it. I don't, what is this? You're like, damn mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, what, what is like, how do you uh, sense that coming up? Like all, I think we're being clever here. Like, do you just let yourself be clever, work through it, get to the other side, find the emotional truth in it? Or like, how do you do that? Sometimes it shows up when you're reading. We pass pages back and forth and um, you smell it. And also we have a history with each other. So I can, and there's no point in me being clever with Alex because he's, we know each other really well. Um, uh, but you, you, we pass pages back and forth and you smell it. And you're like, wait, is this a person talking? Is this really a person talking? Mm -hmm. Even in outer space, even on uh, to, when you're, you've boldly gone where no one's gone before, are these humans or aliens, are these sentient beings talking to each other? And do you love them? Are you on this person's side? Would you say, I mean, do you believe you? <laughs> oh, I wanted to. I wanted to ask you with connecting to that, um, the directing of the pilot was so to me integral to being inside. You know, our our main character for a, a, a little bit of this pilot is an alien, right? And he's doing voiceover, and and um, it's such a craft challenge to put the audience in his point of view and emotional experience, even though we don't know everything he knows, like there's so, it's such high math to me, just such high math. And, um, you know, you really pull it off. And I was sitting there, I couldn't help but I'm a bit of a story junkie. How are they doing this? How are, why am I relating to this guy I should have no business relating to? And that he knows more. And I really think that's absolutely in the writing, but with the wrong direction, so much of the direction of the, the and I'm sure it's in the script, but let me ask you, is it in the script, the close-ups and the, the sound distortion and the, you know, did you write that actually into the script so that readers could 
see and because so much of it is the is the visual. Alex, Alex directed the all. No, yes, no, yes, I, I do know. I'm excited to speak to the director too. Sure. So, but did you guys write that into the script? Is that something that evolved as you started to move into the directing stage? I think the directing process absolutely began with with me and Jenny. I mean, for sure. And and having had the time to build those scripts during the pandemic, you you know, it, it afforded us more opportunity than we usually have to really imagine how these things would get shot because the scenes were so crazy and weird that what you, I think the goal was always to try and anchor them into something that was real. Um, I, I knew from the beginning that I really wanted to put the audience in his shoes visually, that like we had to take that big swing. Um, Jenny and I knew from the beginning that the audience was Justin and that Justin's story needed to be very grounded because that's the person you're instantly going to connect with for all obvious reasons. Um, she's, she's struggling for in ways that are instantly, you know, uh, you feel instant empathy for her. She's trying to feed her child. She's trying to keep her father alive. She's struggling to make ends meet. Um, and then an alien drops out of the sky and says, you're the most important person in the world. Right? So, that right right off the bat, that's a character you're going to want to attach to. And I think that part of what was really compelling for us was, you know, if if this were a network show, at it would have they probably would have said she has to say yes by the end of Act One mm -hmm. in the pilot. And we were not at all interested in telling that version of the show because it would have been very inauthentic. So I think. What happened when I started directing it was I had a good six months with my amazing DP, Tommy Maddox Upshaw. And I, we found, I found Tommy because when I was looking for DPs, uh, one of the reels that was sent in was his work from Snowfall. And I knew that Snowfall did not have the resources that some of the other shows that I was looking at with some of the DPs or movies had. But I saw that what he was doing on that show was extraordinary. Mm. It, was, it was just a different understanding of the emotion of the light and the choice of the lenses in a way that was so specific that I need, you know, I, I wanted to meet him. And so I, I met him for Strange New Worlds, actually, which was gearing up a little, a little ahead of uh, man. And he was like, I really want to do Strange New Worlds. And, you know, he was talking about it. And I thought I'm not going to hire him because I'm going to hire him on man, but I can't tell him that. So so once, once I did hire Maddox, we talked a lot about, and this is sort of where the director part meets with the writer part. We talked a lot about what it meant to put the audience in Faraday's point of view. And we talked about our, a lot of movies that had very specific visual references for us. And one of the things about Maddox that he and I share, and it's total nerd heaven, is that we can remember pretty much every movie we've ever seen, who shot it, and what the quality of light was scene to scene. It's like a weird encyclopedic memory. And so we would just talk about like weird, obscure movies and what was going on and how they achieved. Why did I feel so connected? What was the light doing that made me feel so connected? What were the lenses doing that made me feel so connected? And I think that one of the things that I feel as a director is that the only question that really matters is what does the shot make me feel and what story is it telling me? A beautiful shot for beautiful shot's sake just is, it doesn't do anything for anybody, you know? And 
you know, I have this thing that happens to me whenever I direct, which is that I always end up going back to Spielberg. And I love a lot of directors who are not Spielberg, but there's something about the way he tells his stories as, a, as an artist that is so, he's like Mozart. I mean, if you watch his directing, and it, the, the key is that he's a magician because it's totally invisible, right? He'll, he'll start a shot and the shot starts on this tiny little object and then you'll follow that object and it tells you this, you know, gets into someone's hand and then the person picks it up and the camera widens and that person follows it. And then suddenly you're in a shot and there's 50,000 people in the frame. And then you go back into this tiny little detail again. And it's because what's happening is he's directing your eye to exactly what he wants you to look at. Even in the widest frame, you know, you're not looking, you're not looking at a frame going, what am I supposed to be looking at? You know exactly what you're supposed to be looking at. And then that shot ends because that story point is over. And then the next shot picks up and he's giving you the next piece of story. And that kind of filmmaking is so immersive, but you don't notice it. You don't notice that when Chief Brody gets on the on the on the uh, the ferry and has the conversation with you know two other men about the shark in the water that it's been two and a half minutes without a cut that gets you walking onto the ferry. The whole dialogue on the ferry, then they walk off the ferry and they keep walking. That they've just shot from one island to another. You don't notice it because he's so strategic about how he's directing your eye and how he's telling the story. And so my feeling with man was that, you know, looking at a lot of different cinematographers and looking at a lot of different directors, I knew that we needed to shoot it from the inside out, not the outside in. That, you know, it wasn't an objective experience. It was a totally subjective one. And that the language of the way we presented Justin and the lenses that we chose for Justin were going to be very different than the lenses that we chose for Faraday. And that those crazy close-ups that we did for Faraday, really, if, if, if you kept doing that too far past episode one, the audience would be like, I can't take this anymore. But it would also not be appropriate because he's, it's like he's seeing, he's learning to see. Yeah, he's in tuning the, in. He's yeah. tuning in. And then once he begins to see, you can calm that yeah. stuff down. But he, you know, he's paying attention to these crazy details. And did you write that actually in the script? Like we was, see, yeah. you know, obviously yeah. we always say you're not supposed to direct on the page, but when you talk no, about you, that you yeah. are directing it, the, your reader's attention to the story point that you want them to be focused on emotionally for the story. I mean, there it, you do, are doing that. I mean, that's what I do. I'm, I'm asking, I guess, what, what you guys Yes, I, I, I don't subscribe to the you're not supposed to direct on the page. I don't lot. subscribe to it either. And I, for me, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. And I also think that your stage directions, our stage directions were very much of a piece to all of it. Um, because if they weren't, I don't know. Um, but I guess for our, for our, for our brand new emerging writers, um, with, I think that the difference is you're not saying close up wide shot. You're not listing shots. That's to me, directing on the page. Mm -hmm. That's a shot list. Mm -hmm. You're not doing shot lists, but the way you're writing the words you're cho choosing is directing. It's giving me visuals yes. and where I'm looking. So I just want to be clear so, for our, our, our yeah, super so, emerging writers. So mm -hmm. uh, as somebody who would have like paid good money um, to get a hold of scripts when I was an aspiring writer, because there just wasn't an internet. And also it seemed like a mystical art that only a few magicians could ever do. I'd be happy to give you, we can give you the link to the pilot and you can, you can have that for people to read because it's all in the Oh, script. that would be amazing. Like, they really, awesome. they, they, the, that's the, so great. Yeah. The visuals and the sound, it's all, it's all written into the script. And, and, you know, the, the, the thing that, the thing that I feel is that a, a screenplay is a campfire story. You know, it's like, all right, 
let me tell you a story about a person, right? And let me make you feel a certain thing. And let me make you feel excited. And let me make you feel scared. And it's not just, you know, all the obvious things, which are what's your structure? Who are your characters? You know, how is the story unfolding? What's the pace? What's the, what is it about? All of those things that you talk about. But the thing that I think gets a lot of short shrift in screenwriting uh, conversation is how critical the language that you use is for the description. Mm -hmm. It's essential. And there were a couple of writers growing up for me that I saw breaking the rules. And, you know, when I've read Shane Black's draft of Lethal Weapon, you know, and he's saying things like exterior house in Beverly Hills, the kind of house I'm going to buy when this movie's a big hit, right? Now that's a joke, <laughs> you know, but I was like, wait, you can do that? You can, you can say that in a script? I don't understand. Um, and, you know, and what it does is it, it allows you to, to go inside the internal lives of the character, right? Like <clears throat> the thing they may not be saying, you can actually say in the description. And oftentimes studio executives are reading so fast that you, you can make it a little bit executive proof by helping them along without mm -hmm. necessarily creating something that feels like it's hitting something on the nose, right? That's what you don't want to do. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I, I think that that's a, that's a part of the art that doesn't get discussed enough. Mm. That's amazing. And I know we're getting close to our time, but before we go and ask our final three questions, I think we do have to ask a Star Trek question because our viewers will just kill us if we don't talk about Star Trek, um, uh, our listeners. So, um, well, we have two different questions, but I think they're kind of the same question. There's a real curiosity about creating a Star Trek show in terms of um, making it fresh and your own at the same time, like, like, and versus, and also pleasing a studio or an audience who wants Star Trek, like that line, that balance. Well, um, <laughs> I, I think, I think, so one of the, you know, I, what I learned in the, in writing the 2009 movie with my former writing partner, Bob, but then it was, it was also JJ and Damon and Brian Burke. It was sort of this group of people, um, is that, you you actually have to take really big swings in Star Trek for it to 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 resonate, mm -hmm. and so there were a lot of hugely hugely huge swings that we took in the that were the kind of swings that um, we were either going to get absolutely crucified for or rewarded for, and we were lucky because we got rewarded for them. But you know, we're going to blow up Vulcan. We're going to create an alternate timeline. All of those things are like. If you said that to a Star Trek fan, absent the context of the experience of getting to watch that movie, they would have said this person should never, ever, ever write again, ever, especially on Star Trek, <laughs> right? But but you have to do those things because when you do them and you do them in a way that honors everything that Star Trek is, they 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 realize that Star Trek cannot evolve from generation to generation without big swings like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a big part of it. I think it also goes back to what Jenny said, which is, yeah, you're writing Star Trek. And of course, and look, there's an army of people in our writer's rooms who are gonna tell you, nope, this breaks canon. Nope, that's not how this would go. You know, here's the technical specifics of the, you know, size of the, you know, the hull on this yeah. particular ship. So you could never make that, all of that stuff, right? But that's not really where you are focusing your, your efforts as a writer, right? When Jenny and I are writing Star Trek, we're just writing people. And we're writing people who are, often in extraordinary circumstances and have very little time to solve problems and have to rely on each other and, and themselves. Um, and when you think of it just as writing people, 
from a very humanistic place, it makes science fiction, which a lot of people can write off as being cold or inaccessible, suddenly very accessible and very real and immediate. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, every Star Trek show has, has different rules. There's no one size fits all. The one thing I would say is the one rule you can never break about Star Trek is that it ultimately has to be an optimistic vision. There's been a lot written about how our shows are darker, but I, I challenge the, yes, they, they're darker, but I challenge anyone to say that the shows aren't ultimately optimistic because they are. They always, the, 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 the heroes always end up reinforcing the things that I think Roddenberry was trying to say that are the most important parts of Star Trek. And, and look, we're, we're in a modern streaming audience world where, you know, again, you have to take risks. You have to, you, you can, we can tell slightly darker stories sometimes, not always, sometimes because Star Trek has also always been a mirror that holds itself up to the time in which it was written. And if you're going to be a mirror that reflects society now, you're going to talk about some pretty dark shit. There's just no way around it. Mm -hmm. But it's all the more reason why the vision of Star Trek is important. The optimism is important because at the end of the day, if we said, here's all the things that are really dark and terrible, and then the bad guys win and everything is horrible. That's not Star Trek. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I, I, I'm listening to you guys talk about bravery and courage and I, and big swings. And it's so much that you're almost trying to provoke a reaction of how dare you so that you can say this, this is how, right? Like that you're sort of daring yourself to go as far as you can to get that you either love it or you hate it response, which is I think what we're all trying to do, right? Elicit a response from somebody um, in our work. That's hopefully, I love it, even though it's scary. And well, those like, things can be emotional or flat or- can yeah. Be yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry, Jenny, you go. Um, Safe writing is boring, as we all know. And just circling back to Star Trek for a minute, um, uh, there are things, the very, the weight of the canon or the, the was actually extraordinarily um, liberating. I like sonnets and I like haikus and those are my two favorite forms of poetry in the world. And there are people who don't like them, but I like them. And I like them because within the incredibly strict parameters, you execute these unbelievably beautiful things. And you're told if you understand what you're supposed to do or what you understand where the, where the guardrails are, you're completely free. Um, and if you have complete freedom, if you're not taking a big swing, then just maybe do something else. Um, not to be an asshole. Um, but it's funny, I, I was helping, helping, I was doing, speaking with two young writers who were talk, working, talking about their script and they wanted to know about the script, it was a friend of a friend. And um, in the discussions, they just started talking about um, the one of their mothers and her illness. And I said, wait a minute, that's not in the script. And they said, yeah. And I said, well, but that's what you guys are writing about. Um, they, the it's always emotional the how dare you it's really the how dare i show this part of myself to the world um and if you can i sound incredibly reflexively supportive however 
if you can show that part of yourself to the world, the part that scares you, the part that you think is kind of uh, that part that you're just like, you really don't want anybody to see, that's the part that's probably going to, that's the mother load, I think. Um, So that's the big swing. Um, Yeah. I love it. I love it. Because on this podcast, we talk a lot about lava. And you're, you're actually trying to write towards what you think will burn you up. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that feeling of, oh man, I don't know if I can write this. And it's so funny because I talk about it on here and yeah. I've written and blah, blah, blah. And I just, the other day was like, oh, crap, I've been avoiding it. And I didn't even know I was avoiding it. But then as yeah. soon as I changed one thing, I was like, well, there it is. We always there avoid it. it. We always I'm, avoid it. It's Nobody unconscious. Yeah. It's just no. an unconscious experience of not, which is why I love your language of, you know, big swings and bravery and like yeah. that, whatever you can I, do. I love the distinction between, I said, how dare you, which is you looking for external uh, sort of commentary, but it's how dare I, which is that it comes from me. And that was such a good uh, refocusing of that sort of idea. So thank you I mean, for that. Not at all. I'm a big fan of how dare you. There's a cartoon character. Um, I was a Warner Brothers cartoon girl. I was never a, a Disney cartoon girl no diss, but I was not Mickey, I was Bugs, 100%. And my favorite, and there are many characters in the Bugs Bunny universe, but my favorite one was the gremlin from the Kremlin who appeared in maybe two or three Bugs Bunny episodes. Maybe one of you, you guys, I don't know if you remember. And the gremlin from the Kremlin was a pain in the ass constantly. And the gremlin from the Kremlin had one of those big acme mallets and he would go to um, he went to the armory because it was always World War II and Bugs Bunny and he'd be swatting the bombs, these big mallets and bugs who was unflappable would be losing his shit. And the gremlin from the Kremlin was the only character who made buzz, uh, who made bugs stop. Um, Bugs had to stop the cartoon because he couldn't defeat the gremlin from the Kremlin. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have to look this up. Yeah, he did. I don't know if you guys remember. They're in a missile heading towards earth and bugs finally go, stop. And they stop right there. And because he can't win. And it's the only time it's ever happened to Bugs. And there is a part of, I hope it's within all writers, which is like, fuck you. I'm the gremlin from the Kremlin. Fuck with you and fuck with you and see what I can get away with today. And tomorrow we're going to do it again. So that I completely applaud. Um, but if it's not rooted in, if you're trying to, play a game of gotcha with your audience and you're not pulling that shit out of yourself, it's going to read empty and finger waggy and stupid. You have to be as brave as the people. I think your crew is showing up at five o'clock in the morning, working 16 hours. You write a safe script. I thought we're, you know, I think they're working 20 hour days. Stop that. So good. Well, we know we've, we've kept you guys over. So we just really want to quickly ask our last three questions. We ask it of every guest uh, who come. So what brings you the most joy about writing? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Alex. uh, The laughter that Jenny and I get to share when we're writing easily brings me the most joy, but the writing itself, the the going back and forth with pages really brings me joy. Like nothing. I love, I love tossing pages back and forth. Um, nothing and snacking, nothing and snacking. <laughs> nothing and snacking. All right, Lauren, your turn. What pisses you off about writing? All of it. I mean, 
<laughs> that, that you that that ultimately you can't really be successful at it unless you go toward the lava, which is everything we've ever been taught not to do. All right, and Jeff. Um, what if for both of you, if you could be remembered for one scene that you've written, what would that be? Oh my god! Oh my god! Easy question, right? First one that comes to mind. First one. I can answer for Jenny. Okay, you answer for me. Can I do that. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I think the dishwasher scene in Rachel getting married is so amazing. I just think it's a work of absolute perfection. Let's see if I can answer for Alex. Yeah, can you answer for Alex, Jenny? Or it could be something you both wrote together. No, there's a scene in um, the movie that we used to that was originally called um, "Welcome to People" that ended up being called um, people like us. And uh, it's, there's Chris Pine is in a record store with a little boy. And it's very, and Chris Pine is so desperate in every aspect of his life. And you would think that this even being in the record store with a little boy is bringing him peace, but you can see he even has to work hard in there. And I thought that's everything about human beings, plate spinning, um, running from the simple, uh, running away from the thing that'll give you peace. Um, the running that just like the, he couldn't even relax in that moment. And that was really extraordinary to me. Love it. I hit him, I'm never going to hear the end of it. He's going to be like, yeah. Thank you both so much for being thank on the you show. So much. It was an amazing conversation. This is great. Thank, thank, you. thank you both so thank much. You. Yeah, thank really you appreciate it. Such we fans know. of your work. Oh, well, Absolutely. thank you. And we know you guys have to run, but thank you so much. Thank you. Guys. Take care. If you haven't yet, make sure you join our Facebook group. Uh, there's a wonderful community over there, and we have our Patreon group with lots of fun, interesting uh, happenings going on over there too. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.